and welcome to Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm your host, Donna Bishop, and today I am joined by two awesome guests. I am seriously stoked for our conversation today. I'm joined by Odessa Palmoma Parker and Becky Halliday. Odessa is the contributing editor to the Globe and Mail, and she is also the head of content at the Design Forward Toronto-based cannabis brand Tokyo Smoke. Odessa also is the founder of Vintage Crawl Toronto and has organized and provided public relations services for fashion presentations, pop-ups, and trunk shows around the city. She has served as a mentor for the Toronto chapter of Fashion Group International and as a judge and panel moderator for events hosted by Fashion Takes Action. She is also on the nominating committee for the British Fashion Awards. Hi, Odessa. Hello. And joining Odessa is Becky Halliday. She's a PhD candidate in the graduate program in communication and culture at York University, which is joint with Ryerson University. She has written on various fashion-related topics, including fashion shows, online digital media, street style, celebrity culture, hip-hop, Rad Harani, did I say that right? And Coco Chanel. Thank you so much for being here as well, Becky. Thank you. So before before we get started in our conversation around pop culture, I'd like you both to share, please, a moment in your past when fashion changed your life. And Odessa, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Uh, my answer is pretty pop culture specific. Love it. Bring um, it on. <laughs> uh, I mean, I grew up loving David Bowie, um, Roxy Music, because that's a music I grew up listening to. But I just remember seeing George Michael's Too Funky video for the first time when it came out. And I, I don't know, I was probably like nine, eight or nine. And I was just like, what is this? Like, you know, it had every model. It had like you know, young, young, young Tyra Banks. Totally. Everybody looked fabulous. I mean, the song is a great song too, but it was just like almost like grotesque in its fabulousness. Like it was almost too much. Like there's such an abundance of glamour and beauty and sex and everything together. Um, and I, it was just like, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I'm sure a lot of people hadn't. Um, and it was just so potent to me. And I was just like, oh my God, like I want to be in this world. What is this world? It's so... Beautiful. Love it. And what about you, Becky? My story is a, a little bit more of just a, a personal memory. I was about three years old. Um, my parents and I lived in a, a house on Pacific Avenue, not far from where I live now in the junction. And my mom would take me to daycare every morning. And she bought me a little navy sweatsuit, little matching sweatpants and top and I burst into tears wearing it. I hated it. Oh no! And it was because it was boring. <laughs> I, I didn't. I did not want to match. <laughs> I did not want to wear just navy. And it's one of my first memories of really caring what I wore or realizing that I cared what I wore. And my mom finally dragged me down the street to daycare and they wouldn't take me in that day because I was throwing a tantrum. Because you were so verklempt. I was so verklempt. Fashion hysteria. Yeah. <laughs> and so she had to take me home and then calm me down and then take me back. So I, I prevented my mom from getting to work that day. That's and awesome. And she tells me this. Um, and... I mean, the funny thing is now my style is a little more classic. I, you know, I, I even own a navy sweatshirt that I love a lot, you know, from the Gap that fits nicely. Um, but as a kid, I 
I wanted to stand out. I wanted to use fashion to express myself. Um, it was the 80s. There was a lot of neon to be had, neon vests, neon leggings, neon earrings, neon everything. So I wore head-to-toe neon as much as I possibly could. And I had to. Um, I went to a school that had a uniform as well. So oh, I went completely yes. eclectic as soon as I was out of that guilt. Love it. Yeah. Two very kind of pop culture references <laughs> for our pop culture conversation today. So I I totally acknowledge and appreciate that talking about fashion and pulp culture is a bit of a behemoth and an iceberg of a conversation. (laughs) So we're going to take kind of a generalist approach right now to kind of lay the foundation. And I'm hoping we can have some subsequent conversations to sort of dive into specific eras and, and juicier bits of it. So let's start, let's start at the beginning with like, what what is pop culture? And Becky, I'm just going to throw it to you. Like how how do we define pop culture, especially in the context of what we're going to discuss okay. today? I taught a master seminar in fashion and pop culture at Ryerson a year ago, and we actually spent pretty much an entire course trying to you know answer that question. I had four theorists in our, our first full class, and we we talked about the various definitions. From an academic standpoint, I'm a massive fan of Stuart Hall's definition of pop culture as this sort of, pardon me, (coughs) dry throat already, this realm of contestation between the elite powers and and the masses where where all of these uh, political moments are constantly being articulated and and taking place. Um, For me, I think right now, pop culture is just not just the cultural content that we all consume, but our, our cultural reference points in the present. I think um, that it, you know, it's a language that we're all speaking, even if we have certain interests or certain fandoms. Um, and right now, I think this is where a lot of the political conversation that we we need to be having in our in our climate is is happening, and we're we're having these conversations through pop culture content and through, you know, various artists that we can all relate to. So, I mean, there's, there's so many intersecting communities and genres within it. There's so many places to Um, kind of insert, insert into that. Um, I, I often think, you know, to kind of zone in a little bit, I think also of pop culture kind of having a bit of a moment after World War II with mm-hmm. like the advent of the teenager and mm-hmm. and having, you know, the, the mid to late 40s kind of being this moment where all of a sudden there was this category of humans that was in this kind of purgatory almost between, between childhood and adulthood mm-hmm. that is really quite a modern construct in terms of how we think about things. What do you think, Odessa? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what's interesting about that is you're really looking at a group of people who are still kind of figuring out what their taste is uh, in anything, in music, in style. Um, And so for them to have sort of these things like rock and roll and... um, you know, TV and stuff to, to that suddenly started speaking to them in, like you said, this sort of like intermediary position of like knowing more than you did as a kid, but still not having lived enough or long enough to appreciate the things that like you would in your 30s and 40s. So it's, it's interesting because I feel like pop culture becomes very... Um, infantilized or, or just, you know yeah. what I mean? It, it's seen as something that is very... Um, 
underdeveloped in a way or or just, you know, not well considered because it's supposed to be speaking to people who have not yet, you know, refined their tastes and yes, their sensibilities, yes. so to speak. Um, but I think that's too bad because, you know, what pop culture does is translate some very big concepts and just makes them interesting mm-hmm. to a group of people who might not be interested in them otherwise. And I don't think that's a bad thing. So no, totally. And I think it's important that you brought up, you know, music and, and, and film and television, because all of that was happening at the same, at the mm-hmm. same time as well. Like we had this, this category of this age group, the teenager that was happening the same time that we had James Dean and American mm-hmm. Bandstand and the Ed Sullivan show and 17 magazine started in the late 40s. So mm-hmm. there was kind of this petri dish of of things that were all happening at this at the same time. And Becky, pop culture, you know, as you were talking about it from an academic standpoint, um, I think can get muddled with the notion of like counterculture and whatnot as well. Because when we talk about moving things forward, um, that, I mean, we have to be reacting against something in order to push forward from something. Do you dissect, do you decipher between the two or, because we're going to get into that as we start to talk about different, you know, moments in time. I do try to decipher between the two insofar as counterculture and then also subcultures tend to have their own very explicit political intent and you want to make sure that you know what those movements are reacting to. So, I mean, they're, they're, I think all pop culture should be seen as more or less legitimate or more or less doing political work, but certain countercultures and certain subcultures are doing work on behalf of certain communities or on behalf of certain issues. So I think it's very important to identify, you know, what those communities are and what those issues are. I think when people think about, you know, a counterculture and, and, and I think sometimes it gets defined as pop culture at the same mm-hmm. time, but I, I'm thinking specifically of as hippie culture is something sure. that I think a lot of people will kind of, as they're hearing us talk, will go, oh, well, they must be talking about that. Would you say, sure. Odessa, like is the, and, you know, the hip, calling it yeah. the hippie culture yeah, yeah. sounds a little bit awkward even. Sure, but. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's definitely a good example of something that started off, like you said, with political motivations and wanting to not be part of what had come before and became, you know, completely reappropriated as something to be mass consumed in the same way that like festival fashion is right now, right? It's like, you know, and we talked about this earlier on the phone and I could talk about it forever because I find festival fashion like such a weird concept um, that, you know, you have this wardrobe for this activity when, you know, at the time of the 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 original music festivals, like that's just what you wore, like that was your the person you were. But now it's become this, like I don't want to say costume, but like kind of. It's like you are definitively saying, "I'm casting off the shackles of the workaday world and like going to the desert or wherever." Even though like so many festivals happen in like cities, yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's, you're still it's, at the arena. <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're in like downtown Chicago or whatever. So it's um, it's it's pretty interesting that that's become like something that originally was just part and parcel with a person's lifestyle, if you can call hippie, being a hippie a, a lifestyle. Um, but now it is like a, a, a prescribed thing that you do as part of X, Y, and Z is this overall like going to a festival activity. And can you paint us a bit of a picture about like what does that festival 
uh, fashion mm-hmm. look like? Like, what's the visual that we're talking about? Because I think there is a bit of a, it's referencing hippie culture. Huge. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's actually funny because I went to my first festival as an adult a few weeks ago <laughs> and I've like actively resisted going to a lot of festivals because I think this concept of like the new sorts of festivals, like not appealing to me for right. a lot of reasons. Um but yeah, this this particular festival, Desert Days in Joshua Tree, like every band is a band that I loved and I'd never been there. So I was like, OK, we got to go to this. And it, it was funny to me because I was like, oh, just everything I wear is festival fashion because it's like weird hippie vintage stuff and like kimonos and caftans and like flare jeans and it's um, very unconstrained t-shirts. Exactly. it's very unconstrained right exactly but for a lot of people to whom hashtag festival fashion would speak to it's I would say like purposeful you know what I mean like I can just like dig into my closet because it is all um or most of it is vintage like that kind of stuff whereas you know I, it, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around the fact that like people will go to a store to like get their festival outfit and it's a particular outfit it's like denim it's yeah. like the rocker t-shirt you Some know I don't really want to talk about like the yeah. floral crown yeah <laughs> <laughs> keep like, the laurels out of it <laughs> you know like that's like a whole other like um you know level of it but uh yeah it's definitely specifically like yeah like hippie 60s kind of vibe and uh it's yeah it's very very interesting that it's just become this like um you know it's like the concept of workwear or like black tie it's like a, a type of like dress code and and what I think people, or I shouldn't make assumptions for the good people listening to us, but I think what, what can be forgotten is that the hippie aesthetic was quite radical when it first mm-hmm. came out. Yes. Wouldn't you say, totally. Becky? Like, can you kind of contextualize it for us in in what was going on at the time a little bit and jump in Odessa as well? But like sure. that aesthetic was was quite radical at the time. Yeah, I mean, part of the the hippie aesthetic came out of you know the the states and the anti-Vietnam War protest movement, and you know a number of the music festivals that were happening around the time in the in the late sixties. So there was a, a real tie-in between the the hippie fashion scene and what it spoke for, and and political movements that young people were involved in, um, and and of course you know a, you know a lot of the you know drug experimentation and just that sort of free freewheeling scene that, that rose up in the late 60s and we were talking on the phone about you know we, we watched the transformation of the the Beatles from these mm-hmm. sort of clean cut boys on the Ed Sullivan show although I was saying my, my grandma didn't think they were so clean cut <laughs> sure, she, yeah. she still thought they were kind of scandalous yeah, yeah. but <laughs> but uh and you know further into the Maharishi days um so there was almost and I'm I think I'm citing Valerie Steele here the fashion mm-hmm. historian um there was also almost sort of an anti-fashion movement within the hippie culture because of this idea of non-conformity and non-conformity to some traditional beauty standards, you know, mm-hmm. the 1950s, you know, uh, waistlines. and Yeah, it was and, very structured. Yeah. There was yeah. lots of fasteners and, 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 and structure to the garments. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, suddenly women weren't wearing bras or were wearing very flowing clothing. Um, but at the same time, it was, you know, a, a very intentional statement that they were making about about what the, you know the previous culture had stood for um but at, at the same time i think it very quickly caught on with people who 
like my mom at the time who as you mentioned sort of hadn't necessarily figured out their tastes yet and mm -hmm. and I was telling the the story earlier of my mom going uh she lived in a what's now Etobicoke and she went to see a Jefferson Airplane concert here in Amazing. in 1967 yeah. and she took the bus down and was wearing uh, this long flowing embroidered dress, which I think I, I wore a few times when I was in high school. She nice. still had it. Nice. And she had face paint and everything. Nice. And she ran nice. into like some family friends uh, and, and, you know, guys she knew who were a little bit older than her who were sort of looking at her like, you don't normally dress like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, she said she sort of went, well, you know, she thought to herself, screw you. I can I can dress like this for a night. Like, we both know that sure, you know, yeah, I'm trying yeah, this yeah, on. Yeah. But guess what? Yeah. It's a Jefferson Airplane concert. Yeah. You know, she's among like-minded, like-dressed people. So, yeah, Well, what totally. I think is so cool about that is she's like, she. it sounds like your mom was like trying something on in terms of like, is this my taste? This is yeah. the experience. Even though it, it resembles the aesthetic of festival fashion that, that you were just talking about, Odessa, it comes from a very different like motivation 100%. in terms of in terms of why you are 100%. like putting that face forward totally totally right yeah, yeah definitely which from a pop culture <laughs> point of view I find so fascinating because sure. then because festival fashion has taken all the artifice and none of the meaning from what so much of the hippie culture was totally about. totally yeah <laughs> and now you have H&M doing H&M yeah. meets Coachella yeah collections of yeah. festival fashion yeah I mean it's it's very and hey like that's the world we live in now yeah. you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. it's like I get it yeah. at the same time it, like you know it's that act in itself is so counterintuitive to the pre like the premise of like hippie culture and festival free love free willingness it's like corporations capitalizing on these movements and you know, like you said taking away the backbone of it well, because yeah. so much if we and, and I'm going to jump to another another kind of era to talk about mm -hmm. where um, so much of it is rooted in really bona fide and authentic political statements. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to I, I want to jump to like the youth quake in London sure. mo uh, movement, which is, again, mm -hmm. such a because I think especially when we're talking about this Western conception of, of pop culture, it's the American and the British influences sure. that were so you know, kind of prevalent throughout the mm -hmm. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s in terms of making a lot of the waves there. Mm -hmm. um, we talked a bit about the youth, the youth quake movement. Becky, can you contextualize it for people? Like what, what, what were people, what was it reacting to? And then let's talk a bit about what it, what it looked like. My understanding of the youth quake movement in London is mainly through designers like Mary Quant. So it was much, a much more sort of modern and, and contemporary and even even space age aesthetic it was structurally almost an antithesis of hippie culture um, and I think still a reaction although I, I can't pinpoint it specifically but still a, a reaction to post-war fashion and 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 the the culture that had come before it but with a completely different different structure to it Mm -hmm. Which is what yeah. I find so interesting. Like the, it's reacting to you know some very similar status quo elements, sure. but is expressing itself in a very different visual totally means. Like what when you think of the London youth quake, because I I know you love your British. I do. <laughs> I love it. How do you like? How would you describe that aesthetic? I mean, I think what's really fascinating about it was the the silhouettes 
were, like you said, they were structured, but they were totally different. And, and like you said, the, the spaciness of it was really potent. So it was, you know, it was, it was a reaction, but in the most um, in line way, whereas hippies were like, okay, this is what you did. I'm not going to do that at all. Um, and I think, you know, London in the 60s was so much about looking good. Like mm-hmm. that was, yeah. you know, the other big um, sort of opposition to hippie culture. Not that hippies didn't look good, but that, like you said, they were not concerned with that at all. Whereas, you know, um, Moz and then sort of like the people like Twiggy and, and that sort of thing, like they were hyper concerned with how they looked. Um, and that was like a way of control for a group of people who felt like they had no control. They were coming out of a situation that had no control. They felt like they were being very controlled. And so this is their way of like having their own sort of um, like little fiefdom of like, well, you know, well, I uh, this is the vehicle I choose to use, which was a Vespa. This is, yeah. you know, this is music that I like that um, my parents don't like. Um, but it was also like very much the longing to seem sophisticated. Um, and uh, again, that was the opposite concern for the hippies. So it was it's quite interesting that they were so oppositional, but like rooted in the same rationale. Well, because I think it's important to remember that uh, Britain in the 60s was in like economic strife. Yeah. Like it was a very, very hard time. Mm-hmm. Um in terms of of work and economics and whatnot, mm-hmm. so that feeling of of needing to have control over something was part and parcel because everything else was in such totally. a shambles totally. around them. Yeah. And I'm just as you're talking, I'm just thinking like of of Twiggy and her very like like the structured bang, totally. the exaggerated lashes, yeah. the, um, the Dal Sassoon haircut. Oh, and that sort seriously, of thing. Like, right? It, it's like the the most hyper um perfect outward presentation you could have is that like five point haircut you know what I mean it's like iconically meticulous (laughs) yeah (laughs) she she's the poster child for what the fashion scholar Elizabeth Wissinger, and we were talking about this terms glamour labor, mm. uh, which is this very disciplined labor that we all have to undertake uh, to, you know, make ourselves presentable and um, and it's very much tied to media. It's it's not necessarily tied to uh, only social media, although mm-hmm. she writes about it very much in relation to that. And you know, we're we're much more attached to social media yeah. these days. But as Becky looks at her phone, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, I, as, I as a gesture, not because she's checking her yeah, Instagram. Exactly. <laughs> but but she ties it back to the rise of television and models like Twiggy mm-hmm. and Jean Trimpton, who had you know the meticulous eyelashes and as as you said the haircut, and and talks about you know what an incredible amount of discipline it took mm-hmm. to achieve that look, to maintain that look, to be as thin as these women were I mean it it was something that took discipline for them it took discipline for anyone else to even attempt to replicate um, but and yet the Kardashians so doing that seriously to like an even more hyper level and now we have that added need because eyeballs are on well not on us yeah. <laughs> necessarily, yeah. but on the like the royal we all the time because you're on social media now and that is just adding another dimension to this like hyper awareness of how you look every single second of the day 
Well, it's like there's a new gaze that's been created, right? Like there was this gaze that evolved out of the like media boom of the 40s where all of a sudden we could look at, you know, pop culture icons Mm -hmm. and and magazines and photography. There's this with social media and and digital. All of a sudden that gaze has almost like been reinvented and we're all under that microscope, not just the icons that that we know and love. You're nodding, Becky. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it ties back even further than that um, with with postcards of actresses in the early 1900s. And um, one of my supervisors collects these amazing postcards, like just, you know, basic headshots and portraits that these actresses would send out and you could, you know, collect them. And they were often embellished with sort of little colors of pieces of glitter and stuff Ooh. like that. So Ooh. I think that that's a very... You should bring that even, back. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's not that far off from, you know, the use of Instagram filters and just, you know, sure. little little photoshopping and photo editing techniques that you can use today. Yeah. Well, it's it's all about creating a a presentation of 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 ourselves, mm. right? Like I think back even to like commissioned um portraits even yeah. as far back as like the Renaissance and stuff mm-hmm. like that where and the thing I loved about Renaissance painting is nothing is by accident, right? Like mm-hmm. if there's a flower in the frame, it's there for a very specific mm-hmm. reason. And all of that was construct for perception mm-hmm. to to whoever was 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 looking. Totally. Right. Um when we think of other of other eras, um Odessa, we talked about glam yes. before, and I'm just kind of picking, you know, a few kind of moments out of out of history because there are there are so many that totally. we could that we could dive into. Mm-hmm. What is it about glam that you find so interesting from a from a fashion and pop culture kind of intersection? Um, well, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things that hadn't ever like maybe occurred to me, despite having been a fan of like glam musicians and just like the whole vibe for much of my life and actually can you um, define glam just for sure, for those course. those who who might not be familiar with that with that moment sure, in time sure yeah so it was um you know i'm going to say predominantly a male musician driven um cu- culture um so david bowie mark bolin um the new york dolls like there were bands that sort of um were very, very oppositional to hippies in that they wore metallics, they wore fur, they wore glitter, they wore feathers, they wore makeup. Um, They were the, you know, the kind of hyper extension of um, mod, I would say, in a lot of ways in that, you know, it was taking the concern about appearance and just like blowing it up. Even more. thousand percent, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and... um, you know, so it was interesting because there were a few Americans who adopted this, and one of them was Todd Rundgren. And I actually interviewed him for a story a few years ago um, for the Globe about glam. Sharp intake of breath. Sorry, yes. right into the I know. microphone. <laughs> it was like quite a coup, and I kind of couldn't believe because I just like I wanted to write the story about how male musicians today are so boring and painful and like if they're not they're just like working with a stylist I mean you can say the same thing for female musicians as well but like for men it's just like Drake like I mean thank god he's at least like embracing the low wave and like Mm -hmm. you have ASAP Rocky with his JW Anderson connection but like 
for most of it is like Ed Sheeran in a plaid shirt and it's just like ugh, okay like I guess this is what I have to accept as like a male musical icon whereas yeah. in the 70s you had these guys who just looked so amazing and you know just briefly to say like Alessandro Michele at Gucci like it must have been the greatest day of his life when the Mark Bolin television shows became available on YouTube Seriously. because there's so much he did it all before Gucci everything down to like the glitter Mary Janes so I talked to Todd Rundgren about this because I was like why don't male musicians do this anymore I mean we're supposed to live in this time where gender is fluid and um you know anybody can do anything they want and he said something that had like never occurred to me before thinking about glam he was like oh yeah we just did it because we wanted girls to like us like we painted our nails and like they loved the long hair and they loved how we dressed and stuff and I was like Really? So you dressed in a hyper-feminine way so women would like you. And now that I think about it, like looking at pictures my mom would take at like a uh, a faces show or something and looking at like Rod Stewart and Ron Wood and they're like satin trousers and like glittery tops and stuff, I was like... That's really weird that that's the conclusion that you came to, but yet it's true. Like women love that stuff. I love that stuff. So... I mean, what I find so interesting about glam is that, and this is like maybe the semiotician in me, mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's just such a bizarre premise to kind of like subvert something, but then you're like subverting the subversion because yeah. your ultimate goal was like still the thing you wanted to accomplish there that people try to accomplish by doing the opposite of what yeah, you did. Yeah, it's like reversed, reverse it, psychology. It, yeah. It's very, it's super super interesting. Yeah. Um but also just this like the tackiness of it. Like it's just they just really um and again it's like this kind of oppositional concept of like caring so much about how you looked but also at the same so clearly not giving a you know like not yeah. caring about it because you were doing the total like it was blew everyone's minds to see yeah. these dudes wearing makeup and stuff. So, you know, you you cared so much, but at the same time, you didn't care at all. I, I just find it such a fascinating mix, you know? It's a totally... And, and we're talking like mid, late 70s, exactly. right? Yeah. So that's a, that, it's a really interesting time for that to be happening. Totally. As totally. well. Yeah. And just like feeling like the completely... Um, feminine thing was like the way you wanted to like appear most virile or something yeah. it's so strange it's so heteronormative it's, yeah it's like really really odd but then I mean you kind of look at like hair metal in the 80s which of course like is so um it's also it's, hyper feminized it's so hyper feminized yeah. but it's also like very uh, like explicitly trying to entice women with that music yeah so I mean I guess that's where it kind of like at that point like you were through the looking glass and it was just yeah. kind of like <laughs> well and just th- when I'm thinking of the hair metal like because it is like aesthetically I can totally connect the dots but all of a sudden the content of the music started to take on this really like departure from glam in terms 100%. of it's like like misogynistic yes. lyrics yeah. and like really the, it, again, it's like taking the artifice yeah. and not any of the of yeah. the original political intention and totally. twisting it into something that it was not meant. Totally, to yeah, be. yeah, yeah. I could see you nodding, 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 Becky. What were what were you thinking as Odessa was talking about? You know, the 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 almost the reverse psychology of the glam rock in order to get us back to where we started. Like I could just see your wheels turning. As we were talking about it, so so many theoretical terms around masculinity <laughs> and true. heteronormativity. Um, 
yeah, it, oh, hang on. It's interesting to me. Sorry, I'm totally. No, I know. It's, it's, it's so, it's so, it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot going on because it is this, like, this time of wanting to, you know, it's, it's creating a, a time of hyper femininity in order to attract females through the masculine gaze. Sort of. Through, through a heteronormative gaze. Yeah, yeah. masculine's not, not fair, but sure, yeah, heteronormative. Yeah. I mean, but, like, this is Todd Rundgren's. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, no. it's not, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. sure Mark Bowie would have told you something different, like David Bowie would have yeah. told you something different. Like, it, it was just very, very fascinating, because I was just like, oh, okay, that's what yeah. <laughs> And that like, worked you know for you. I, mean? I was like, <laughs> and it certainly did. Well, um, so yeah, it was fascinating. I have to wonder now, though, like... You know, there there are a lot of women who really love Ed Sheeran too, sure. and and and, yeah. um, and I I, f- I see it in the in the folk music scene as well. Like you know, there there's something there's something about a sensitive male, <laughs> however however he is portrayed or chooses to portray himself, mm-hmm. that I think is is very appealing, and I I think. Yeah, there's something about male musicians negotiating these varying degrees of of sexuality, and I I think you're absolutely right that hair metal somehow just like yeah it took it took it this movement to its extreme, um, and well push- even in the dress like of the tight jeans and the mm-hmm. long oh, yeah. scarves and yeah. you know there was a lot of drama there, and I was just thinking also like when we were talking about how glam rock was like a mid mid seventies um, uh, moment, there's such you know, part of the other thing that happened with the advent of the teenager as we get into more of the of the 60s was the fragmentation of a, a greater fragmentation of taste and music genres. So like none of these things existed as like in bubbles, mm-hmm. right? Like we had glam rock happening at the same time as disco and at the same time mm-hmm. as like Southern rock and the and the California scene, like the, mm-hmm. the everyone from like James Taylor and the Eagles were happening mm-hmm. at the same time, right? Totally. So pop culture had many facets all happening all happening at once depending and geography played such a an important part then because we didn't have the same element of globalization like it was called the british invasion for a reason because they literally came down on an airplane and all of a sudden the beatles were in america (laughs) yeah 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 so that also plays a part and we talked a little bit about immigration and stuff in terms of pop culture and fashion Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the entire history of punk culture in in Britain, especially, can be attributed to immigration and various influences um, surrounding the West Indies and and people coming coming to the UK and just the these working class communities that that needed an needed a cultural outlet, needed a, a mode of expression, and you know all of the different music scenes developing and. Various, various, just young people looking for forms of of cultural exchange and and looking to to borrow elements from from other cultures. So I think abs- absolutely, pop culture needs to be seen as as a product of diversity and as a product of of ever you know people just looking for for influences. And what I think is is interesting about about the punk movement is even though its aesthetic was obviously very different from the hippie culture in terms of, you know, the biker jackets and and Doc Martens and Spiked Hair and the Mohawk and, and, and all of that that we associate with punk. It 
it it had very similar motivations in terms of wanting to be a direct departure from from what the status quo was and trying to move as far as possible from what the the norm I make air quotes the norm <laughs> totally. was at the time totally yeah um, what are some other um, you know moments in in fashion and and pop culture Odessa that you mm-hmm. think are kind of like I'm going to just sort of whisper Andy Warhol because I think sure, he yeah. deserves his <laughs> own we'll do a whole Andy Warhol sure. episode because he's such you know, be- between him and the factory and, mm-hmm. and Edie Sedwick, like there's a whole lot to talk about with him, of but course. are there other, are there other kind of intersections that you just think like, Oh, we can't like not at least mention. Sure. Um, Oh, I'm well, I mean, grunge and the way that was adopted by like Mark Jacobs and, you know, something that's in vogue and that pissed a lot of grunge people off oh yeah um you know and then you had like the newer wave where like Dries Van Noten was did his uh, grunge collection a few seasons ago and um you know again it was just sort of this like kind of like the festival fashion to me you know and I do love Dries and I think that was born (laughs) out of a genuine and even with Marc Jacobs too like he just thought it was like really cool probably not appropriate for Perry Ellis obviously and that vibe but if he had just done it with his own brand it wouldn't have probably garnered the same reaction it was just like the particular instance um but yeah it's it's kind of that concept is sort of very similar to the festival fashion in that it's like you know I'm gonna go to Zara and get my grunge shirt or whatever you know and it's like now I'm grunge um without really necessarily knowing that you're what any of the 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 meaning behind that concept was or or even the music you know and I think what's so fascinating about fast fashion is like you can go in there and buy like a Nirvana shirt from Forever 21 you can uh just like the the most hilarious things and you know at the same time like a place like Backstage Pass which is where I used to go to get my like quote unquote authentic rock t-shirts in high school yeah that business had to close but now it's just these fast fashion retailers that are are, that are pushing that stuff out there so it's kind of unusual and then so concert merch has had Mm -hmm. to take on a completely new dimension because you can go anywhere to get like a an x t-shirt you can go to the mall Mm -hmm. so it's the concert experience and what does that mean so now you know obviously Kanye is a good example Justin Bieber um just the the way that associating yourself with a band and therefore like the ideology surrounding that band or musician um has to become so intrinsically linked with like a collaboration or a pop-up or a, a whole other dimension of action than just going to the concert and liking the music well and it's so funny you mentioned concert merch because i remember the first time it occurred to me that people were reprinting Mm-hmm. concert t-shirts like I no longer needed to like troll Kensington Market and like get all yeah, excited yeah. because I yeah. found a t-shirt from when the jam played in the 80s totally it it like it hadn't actually ever occurred to me that sure. they would reprint them and sure. then I was so sad because then it's not it, it wasn't it wasn't the same yeah and I want to ask you something a sec yeah. Becky but one thing you were just mentioning there Odessa that I just wanted to touch on is we've mentioned hippie culture and festival culture a couple of times but mm-hmm. we haven't talked about when we've seen that on the runway because sure, obviously yeah. like I'm sure you can rhyme off a few designers that have a- appropriated that Saint Laurent as a brand for like the last 10 years literally it's it's I mean that's just their MO now right um is sort of 
that Wellington, you know, chopped denim. Like they were, they like a few seasons ago, they had tiaras and stuff. Like it's like they are trying to get someone to wear this at Glastonbury, basically. Well, and you know what I think is so interesting also is like that festival fashion crosses musical genres because that yeah. same festival fashion you'll see at Glastonbury, you'll yeah. see at Concert Days, and you'll see at Boots and Hearts. Totally. So the fashion is no longer associated with a specific musical music genre either. No, it's like the act. It's it's crossing all of those things. Yeah. Like, can you imagine being seen at a country concert in the same clothes that someone would be wearing like at an alt rock concert yeah. in Scotland? Like, yeah, that's it's, crazy. It's weird. Yeah, it's really, it's very, very, very strange. <laughs> to me, I, I find it oddly practical. Like, I, I will look up, you know, street style or festival fashion yeah. features yeah. from Glastonbury yeah. if I'm going to, like, I was at the, the Turf Festival, I think, I don't think it's even around anymore, but um, a couple of years ago, on a very, very rainy weekend in September, thinking, okay, you know what, I am going to have to wear my hunter boots. That's so true. what do I match with That's my true. hunter boots? Because we're in Canada, and it's September, yeah. and the weather might be inclement. So, you totally. know, I can't... I can't can't do you know the cutoffs and and crochet top, yeah, totally. perhaps. Although I mean, sure again, you can't just wear your black all tights all with your cutoff denims. So you're good to go. Exactly. But I mean, exactly. it is really no different than like how street style has become the act of dressing up to go to a fashion yes. show. It's not just like the people who are going to the fashion show. It's like the and I, you know I'm guilty of it now too because I'm aware of people taking photos of me and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's. You know, it it doesn't change how I dress, but it certainly changes how I think about, like, the act of walking into that show. I have to be hyper aware of, like, how my face looks and, you know, like, just getting in people's way, people getting in my way. It's, It's no longer the idea that, like, we're all just people in this industry who obviously love clothes. It's what is happening outside of it. So again, it's like the act of doing it rather than like the the concept behind it. Well, and I think like just to kind of to wrap it up because we could we could take this in so many directions which <laughs> which we will in subsequent uh podcasts, but was it really like just going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning and the construct of the teenager in the 1940s? Like was would you guys say it's fair to observe that that was kind of the first generation to have different tastes where this idea of like constructing um, what you what you wanted to wear, not just because we've always been concerned about how we looked, you know, that's as old as as old as time. (laughs) But now that there was all of these other cultural constructs with film and television and media that allowed us to have tastes and associate with a community that was more than just our class and our job, that that was kind of the birth of this construct of of pop culture and fashion coming together where we were creating personas, per se. I think I'm actually going to take it to the present moment because I heard Kenneth Cole speak on Wednesday night with Jeannie Becker at the Ted Rogers School of Management just down the street from here. And... He said something that that struck me. He said, you have an infinite number of options right now. So I feel like perhaps we don't have, you know, distinct tastes or different tastes than we ever did before, but we have an infinite number of tastes that we can possibly choose from that are offered 
to us in various forms, like through the media more so than we've ever had before. So we just, there is a certain, and I'm not going to call it democratic per se, but there (laughs) is a certain level of access to various taste communities and, and ways of articulating our taste and, you know, expressing our tastes. There is more of that than we've ever had access to. At the same time, I feel like there's still more uh, policing of that. There's more self-policing of that. And there's more of having to turn that into a brand. Mm-hmm. And I, going back to what you said about street style, one of, one of the areas that I'm very interested in my research is is how fashion's incorporation, incorporation and I use that word from Dick Hebdig on punk, how fashion... Like the way that fashion has embraced street style to the point where the street style features have always been on, you know, Vogue.com slash runway or mm-hmm. before that style.com. The way that street style features have taken over Instagram and, and every every possible media outlet is very akin to, I think, how fashion embraced uh, and, and appropriated in some cases movements like grunge or movements like hip hop. Um, where it took something that was on the peripheries in which it perhaps didn't even want to touch at certain points and now and now it's it's just embraced it and and you know we we can't we can't escape street style features so i and, and street style has just very much become the the way that we look at trends now oh no oh no we haven't even touched on things like hip hop which is obviously another like such an important yes. seminal moment. Kanye, you meant you mentioned yeah. Kanye yeah. already, but my my I would be remiss, and my students would would you know email me if I didn't mention the the huge influence that is Kanye West. He is, uh, yeah, he is pretty much the impresario I think of of pop culture today, and one of the first people to really do the the merchandising along with his collections. Mm-hmm. As I saw when I got to go see his Easy Season 3 show because the collections were all in the models and the merch was being sold at Madison Square Garden and the lineups were around the concourse. Okay, stay tuned yeah. for a anyway, longer conversation but about I digress. that. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm going to leave it there because it's such a, as we were saying at the beginning, an iceberg of a conversation, but I think yeah. we chipped away at it a little bit. So thank oh, you yeah. very, very much. I'm going to uh, ask you guys my favorite closing question. If you could only wear one outfit for the rest of your life, climate notwithstanding, and I won't hold you to it, what would it be, Becky? I feel like my outfit is, my ideal outfit is kind of a variation on what I have now, which is basically some kind of bomber jacket, uh, a pair of pointy-toed boots, usually ankle boots, and a pair of nice jeans, and I'm maybe a vintage rocker t-shirt or something like that. I, I feel like that has become a little bit of a uniform for me, and despite me being a complete shopaholic, I'm always sort of putting a variation on that entire look. I have a diesel bomber jacket that I bought on clearance about 10 years ago now and I've had it repaired a couple of times <laughs> nice. and it's it's got a lot of threads on it that are starting to fray but I refuse to part with it Steak because it's something yeah. I was going to say that makes it thing. very au courant yeah. <laughs> yeah I wore just to the gym the other day and a friend complimented me yeah. on it as if it was brand new and I went crap I can't part yeah. with you so if I can just keep that jacket you know intact then that would be my outfit for real. what about yeah. you Odessa uh, I'd have to say a pair of metallic boots of some form, um, just some really great flowy trousers, um, a nice oversized patterned blouse. The trousers would also be patterned, but a different pattern, obviously. Um, a nice slouchy blouser, uh, blazer rather, um, and some big earrings, probably. 
Um, it's that's pretty much, I guess, like my uniform lately is is a sort of like a suit, but not like but a, not yeah, sort of a, the completely mismatched suit. Uh, three different suits from different people, basically. Uh, De- Becky and Odessa, thank you so much for being here. Becky, if people want to find out more about you or follow you, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at BeckyHalliday22. Uh, I also have contact information on the Ryerson University faculty website, so you're welcome to email me there. Amazing. And what about you, Odessa? Uh, I'm on Instagram at, at OdessaPaloma. Um, I also have a website that is very outdated, but you can certainly go there and <laughs> it has my contact information and it's uh, odessapalomaparker.com. Awesome. And you can follow me at This Is Donna B. Uh, a big thank you to CAFA, our producing partner with this podcast. And you can find out more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards at C A F A W A R D S. And of course, you can follow Fashion Talks at Fashion Talks Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. Um, please tell people however you can. It really helps get the world out there, or the word out there, I should say. And if you feel inclined to give us a high five, on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. That would be awesome. Thank you to Adam. Oh my goodness, I just blanked on how to say Adam's last name. Harochetsky. He's nodding. I did an okay job. Today's sound engineer. And if you have an idea for Fashion Talks and you want to let me know, please email me at hello at fashiontalks.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Donna Bishop at Fashion Talks.